We knew sports betting would be big in Ohio, but I don't know that any of us understood just how big. It's the first story we'll be talking about on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Courtney Estoffi, and Laura Johnston. And Lisa, you're up. What staggering sum of money was bet on sports in the first month that that was legal in Ohio? And how much will the state get in taxes for that money? It was an eye-popping $1.1 billion in wagers made just in the first month of this year, in the first month of it being legal. Uh, $320 million of that, though, was in promotional credits from mobile betting apps. So the state gets $21 million in tax revenue from this windfall, and uh, uh, we can break this down further. So there are 16 betting apps operating in Ohio. They made, uh, they got $1.09 billion in wagers and they paid out $864 million in real money. So the rest of that would be promotional credits or voided uh, bets. Uh, the 15 or the 14 physical sports books in the state, they took in three, $23 million in bets and paid out $20 million in winnings. And then when you go to the kiosks, even the kiosks and bars and restaurants did well, $850,000 in wages, and they paid almost all of that out, uh, $720,000 in winnings paid out. The number one app in Ohio so far is FanDuel. They took in $494 million in bets. And DraftKings, number two, at $344 million. So, you know, gambling companies cannot subtract these promotional credits from their overall revenue their tax revenue. So the revenue equals bets placed minus the winnings and the voided bets. I, I the number was what you said, eye popping. I, I, and the difference between what's going into the apps on the phone compared to the people that show up. I mean, that is overwhelmingly on the phone. It almost makes you wonder if building those sports books was worth it because people clearly want to do this from the comfort of their homes, their cars, their offices, wherever. I, I just wonder what this means for problem gambling. How many of those billion dollars plus in bets were made by people who couldn't afford to make them? And what are the ramifications of that? We won't see that for a while. There's going to be a delayed reaction. But you've got to think with that size of the, the dollar amount going into this, there must be some problem gambling in there. Well, and I often wonder too, is how many of these people with gambling problems are first time gamblers? I mean, you know, a lot, you know, usually gambling addiction is something that's, you know, that takes a while to build up. So I wonder if a lot of first time people are getting into trouble. Yeah, because before it wasn't that easy to gamble. You'd have to go to a casino or something, but now for the first time you can just do it in your on your sofa. I, I, we did a story about the number of calls to the hotline doubling, but I, I don't think that really gives you the scope of the problem. I imagine a lot of the bets were on NFL games. That seems to be the number one attraction to the sports books. So whether we'll have 12 billion at the end of the year seems a bit doubtful, but what an opening. I, I heard from somebody that knows this kind of thing that New York had $1.7 in its first month. Uh, so we weren't quite at that standard, but it's still a staggering sum of money. You're listening to Today in Ohio. 
We talked yesterday about unemployment fraud and a worker who had approved claims for relatives that cost taxpayers maybe tens of thousands of dollars. But on Tuesday came news of a claims worker accused of a much bigger haul. Laura, what did this person do? Right. This isn't a favor for family. This is $800,000 for strangers that a customer service worker found by advertising on Facebook. The inspector general from the Ohio State inspector general still found this person in this fraud. Obviously, they're looking into the millions of dollars of fraud that happened with the unemployment claims, mostly the pandemic claims over the pandemic. So Denisha Shepard is actually charged with this crime. She's 30. She's from Hamilton County. And she removed fraud flags from more than 40 people's unemployment claims, according to the inspector general. And the Hamilton County grand jury has indicted her and three others for theft, telecommunication fraud, and bribery. So she went by this name, Bodacious Booter, on Facebook. And basically, people paid her to approve them for unemployment benefits. And even prison inmates made digital payments to her. Wow. I, uh, we joked yesterday that if they solved the billion dollars of fraud by tens of thousands at a time, that it would take forever to do it this way, you know, you're taking a bigger bite, $800,000 at a time. Maybe it doesn't take centuries. It just takes decades. I guess she's, I mean, she was interviewed in the report. She said she knew she was doing the wrong thing, but she thought she was helping people and they could help me on the back end. She worked there only between March of 2021 and the following August when she was fired. The illicit claims started in June. So that was only two months worth of fraud that got 800, you know, added up to $800,000. And you wonder how many people were doing this. Well, the idea that I thought I was helping people, you were being bribed. I mean, there's no, people were paying you to do something you shouldn't have been doing. That's clearly not. And I don't think they think of it as stealing from taxpayers, which it is, right? This is our tax money that pays out unemployment claims. It's just maybe the government seems like this amorphous blob that, you know, no one's getting hurt in the scheme, but it, it is coming from all of our pockets. Yeah. And again, the government was doing what it could to get money out as fast Mm -hmm. as possible to help people. So some of the controls were lacking. It's just going to be a big job to go back now and find where a lot of the theft and fraud was. And who knows if you can get it all back. My, My guess is you can't get the genie back in the bottle. Yeah, not a chance. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Would the director of the Environmental Protection Agency allow his kids to swim in the waterways around the East Palestine train derailment, waterways that are covered with a rainbow-colored film? Courtney, seems like an obvious answer. Yeah, that was a hard no from (laughs) EPA Director Michael Regan. Regan, um, you know, he said this Tuesday, and that was his third trip to East Palestine. And, you know, Regan told us that cleanup work is continuing at a rapid pace, The EPA is awaiting a longer-term plan from Norfolk Southern to really outline every single step, Reagan said, to clean up the damage caused by the derailment. And he pledged that no detail would be overlooked. You know, as part of his trip, the EPA set up a new community welcome center in town where residents can drop in, meet with staff, other federal agencies to learn about support services and what help they can get from the federal government. Yeah, this has got to continue to affect wildlife. If it's got a rainbow-colored film on it and the animals are drinking it, nothing good is going to come of that. That's uh, the the description of the rainbow-colored film told you everything you needed to know. 
Yeah. Yeah. Scary stuff continuing. And, and, you know, at least he's, he's saying what we're all thinking. (laughs) Um, you know, and then, you know, as we, as we talked on Tuesday, we heard from us representative Bill Johnson. He's a Marietta Republican who represents East Palestine. And we talk about this parade of different officials who have stopped by town and that hasn't included Joe Biden and that's rubbing Johnson the wrong way. There's been calls for Biden to come visit and, and 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 Johnson said it was past time for the president to come out to East Palestine. I, I think it's also interesting, Johnson, he chairs a subcommittee related to this kind of thing um, under the House Energy and Commerce Committee. And, and Johnson is going to hold a hearing on March 28th on the derailment, he said. And, and he said the subcommittee is going to come out to Ohio at some point down the road and, and, and do a field hearing in Ohio. Oh, joy. More politicians come in to politicize the trade and derailment. Just what we need in Ohio. But do you know what bothers me about this more than anything else with all these political gadflies and other people showing up in East Palestine is that now, you know, these people don't trust the government as it is, and they're sowing more distrust in the government. So they're not going to believe anything that the EPA says. I don't think they will. No, I, I think that's a big problem. Well, the Axios National Newsletter today had a very interesting facsimile of a 50-year-old newspaper from Salem or somewhere about a derailment in East Palestine back then that was grossly mishandled. This is a community that has seen this before, and I mm. didn't know that before I saw that uh, article. It's interesting to see how that went. You're listening to Today in Ohio. With Larry Householder's team saying he will take the stand today in his own defense, we'll have to see. In the massive corruption trial, let's talk about his case a bit. Who were the legislators who took the stand as defense witnesses? Any surprises there, Lisa? Not to my mind. Uh, the first person to take the stand for the defense was uh, Representative Nina Vitale, who's the Republican from Urbana, and he's the head of the House Energy and National Natural Resources Committee, which took public comment and amendments on House Bill 6, and he testified that early drafts of the bill had an indefinite subsidy for nuke plants, which he didn't like subsidies at all, and he managed to get it down to $1.3 billion over six years, which was what was passed. And he felt it was necessary, though, because he says federal policy was disenfranchising some electricity generators. And he also testified that Larry Householder did not pressure him for his vote to become House Speaker. So on cross-examination, they did produce evidence of Vitali using the Householder Operation and First Energy for campaign funds. There were two emails to Jeff Longstreth in 2017 and 2018 asking if he should ask Householder for campaign money from First Energy lobbyists. <laughs> and he said, quote, I may need Anna Lippincott's help. And Anna Lippincott, who testified for prosecutors, she worked with Householder and, and was, you know, helped established in bank accounts for generation now. So, yeah. And he also said in a voicemail to Householder, Vitali said, I'm in if that's what you want me to do when he was selected as the head of this committee. Another, yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> I mean, that that I, I don't think he's a surprise at all. He's pretty much a shill for the energy lobby. What about Bill Seitz? Yeah, the Republican from Cincinnati. Uh, actually, he was the first witness for the defense. He was part of the householder leadership team, and he testified that he supported House Bill 6 because it preserved jobs and local tax bases, provided carbon-free power and diverse fuel supply, and he, he was happy that it got rid of renewable energy and efficiency mandates, which he called Mandate Mountain. Yeah, he. it's not a surprise that either of these guys went this way. I, and both of them were, were trying to say, I was in without any, I didn't need to be pressured in the bribery scandal. I was already in, which I'm not sure is the right, the right message. Andrew Tobias wrote an interesting story about how the judge had said it doesn't matter whether mm-hmm. HB6 was a good law or not. Um, but, but Andrew said that's really has become part of this case is what about this law? Was it a good law? And it's not looking like the law is doing any better than Householder and Borges are. Right. And federal judge Timothy Black said the merits of House Bill 6 are irrelevant because bribery alleged in this case. And this was in a written order that he issued just before the trial began. And he urged the jury not to consider if House Bill 6 is good or bad. Yeah, you can have bribery in a law that's that's actually beneficial. It doesn't mean it's not just bad laws that get bribery schemes. Well, I, I still have doubts that Larry Helsolder will take the stand. I've seen it before where up until the 11th hour, they're showing their hands like they're going to take the stand and then they don't. I will know very shortly and we'll be talking about it tomorrow on Today in Ohio. Was all that time and money wasted on the criminal investigation of the controversial deaths of inmates a few years back at the Cuyahoga County Jail? What is the final word on the biggest conviction to come out of the case, the only one that was really directly related to the decisions that could be tied to the deaths? Laura? I wouldn't say all of it is time and money wasted. The jail is better, even though it's far from perfect. We're a lot more aware of the problems, even if we haven't solved them all yet. But you're right. Former director Ken Mills is at this point not convicted and won't be convicted, even though he already served his entire nine month sentence at the Portage County Jail as he appealed this conviction. The Ohio Supreme Court has decided they will not consider the case of whether to reinstate the conviction of Mills. And this is a five justice majority. They rejected attorney Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost's request to revisit this decision from November to throw out his September 2021 conviction. He was convicted then of two misdemeanor counts of dereliction of duty and falsification over the handling of the jail between 2015 and 2019. So at this point, it's vacated and they won't be reopening it. Well, a couple of things. He did serve his time. He didn't. Right. It's not like he gets out of sense. He just get his record cleared. And it's all about that the judge allowed the jury to hear about the deaths, which was not supposed to be part of the jury charge. I would argue that the reason we know about what happened is because of Courtney Astolfi and Adam Faris, who did terrific reporting back then to show us what decisions went into the conditions yeah, that led to the deaths. Even- been a criminal investigation without that work. I mean, this investigation actually began as an investigation of the tech unit at the county. It expanded into the jail. The prosecutor that was on it took it into the jail. They ended up uh, convicting some guards of things unrelated to the deaths. Mills was the, the the big enchilada in this case. He was the one they held up as 
the guy who was responsible. And if right. you read Courtney's and Adam's reporting, Mills did play a key role in decisions with regard to nursing and some other things. But he's cleared. He's he's not guilty. <laughs> right, exactly. So the state attorney said he had ignored multiple warnings about the inmate and officer safety because he was just trying to save the county money by merging jails and that he created such dire conditions that inmates weren't getting the proper medical care. And then remember, there was... Uh, nine inmates dying in less than 18 months. After those first five deaths, that's when Armin Budish brought in the U.S. Marshals Service. They inspected the jail, had a report that said it was inhumane conditions. So you're right. Without this trial, there still would have been a whole lot of attention on the jail. And it was a sprawling investigation. I don't even know how long it lasted, but it... I don't even know if they've formally concluded it. Courtney, were you surprised by this decision? Um, I was disheartened by this decision. I thought the the overturning of the conviction at the the lower court level, because they showed that video of of one inmate, Joseph Arquillo, crumpled over in a packed cell, you know, shortly before his death. I, I get that they weren't supposed to present that evidence, but my goodness, there's the manifestation of the problem. And, and I guess, you know, Okay, criminal conviction or not, what happened at the Cuyahoga County Jail was was criminal in every sense of the word except the literal definition, right? <laughs> it, was, it was morally bankrupt. Ken Mills was at the helm. He at least served time in jail. Armin Budish didn't end up running for a third term, so we've got the other piece of the issue out of there. So, And, and I think what Laura said at the beginning is most important here. There is such a huge conversation and, and attention now on hopefully doing the jail right that I don't think would have happened had all this not not occurred under Mills's and Budish's watch. Or without your reporting to unveil what had gone on there. Without your reporting, I don't think any of this would have ensued. So a tip of the hat, you got some action. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Remember all that effort Sonny Simon, the Cuyahoga County Council member, put into banning plastic bags before the pandemic when stores resorted to using them because of sanitation? Since then, the state prohibited local governments from banning the bags. So, Courtney, what is Simon's latest move? Yeah, so the county is now looking to use ARPA funds to distribute $5,000 grants to local businesses and, and locally owned franchises. To, to get them up and running on making the switch from plastic to other types of, of containers for their customers. And and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I saw that the, that the state government in, in the midst of the pandemic put a temporary pause on these bans, um, but that expired at the beginning of 2022. So I think the ban's still in effect, but but so I think the ban's now in effect, but I think what the county has found is they're, they're concerned that the the downstream effect of those state laws would still prohibit them potentially from levying the fines they intended to levy if stores didn't comply with these bans. So it appears as if they're now turning more to the carrot, the grants to to implement the, the different kinds of containers rather than the stick approach, which would be those fines that they are nervous runs afoul of that law. I thought that the state did pass a law banning it. I got that wrong. It was just a moratorium. In the story that Caitlin Durbin wrote, it said it's sunset. Like that was a temporary pause, like Courtney said. But I think the county doesn't want to raise up the ire of any more state legislators right now who could easily do it again, right? So the idea is 
they have this ARPA money. They're going to incentivize. And it has changed, even, mm-hmm. even with all of the pandemic. And Courtney, <laughs> I know that you covered this. I covered this back in 2012 when this first came up. So talk about sprawling. This oh. has been going on for more than a decade, this push to get plastic bags out of Cuyahoga County, is that Giant Eagle has gotten rid of their plastic mm-hmm. bags. You go to Kohl's, you get a paper mm-hmm. bag. Um, Michael's gives out paper bags. So there are a whole lot of companies that either nationally because of their corporate structure or have just decided to do it anyway, I think there are fewer plastic bags to even deal with at this point. Okay. We should point out that Sonny Simon is committing money to the plastic bag problem while refusing to solve the problem with Say Yes and the need for social services for children in Cleveland. Just a a comparison of where her priorities are. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What is the University of Cincinnati naming for former Senator Rob Portman? Lisa, it seems like whenever you have a longtime politician go off into the sunset, you get tributes. Yeah, trustees at the University of Cincinnati voted to establish the Portman Center for Policy Solutions, part of their School of Public and International Affairs. And um, Rob Portman, of course, is thrilled. He says it's a way to engage young people in public service, encouraging civility, bipartisanship, and finding common ground. He says that lots of young adults are turned off by the extreme partisan gridlock going on today. And, And he wants to highlight areas where both parties can work together. He's going to be donating his House and Senate papers from his long career in Congress, and he's working with the university to raise a $5 million endowment for the center. Um, and we have to point out, you know, and he he's right. We've often, you know, gotten on his case for being spineless, and sometimes he has been. But he's very proud of the 228 bills that he co-authored that were made law by two Democratic presidents and one uh, Republican president. And the Portman Center will provide scholarship support, internships, and a co-op for students who are chosen as Portman Fellows. And then we'll have an annual symposium that will focus on national policy issues and proposed solutions. I guess in a polarized era like we're in now, anybody that manages to get something bipartisan passed deserves a pat on the back. Mm -hmm. And Portman did manage to do that more than a lot of others while maintaining his Republican credibility. And it seems like this center will try to tee off from there. Yeah. And, and, you know, he was so central to the negotiations with Ukraine because he was head of the Senate Ukraine caucus. And he's known how to negotiate, not just in Congress, but on an international level as well. All right. And maybe they can work with Baldwin Wallace on on civil discourse. Mm -hmm. Maybe. Uh, Lauren Copeland, Professor Lauren Copeland has heard from quite a few people in response to that. She sent me a note yesterday and she's just charmed by all the people that have an interest in doing that. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Courtney, last week you gave a preview of a story about anomalies and how Cleveland City Council has been voting for the last five decades or more. You've since published that story. What was the final upshot of it? Yeah, so, you know, just going back to what we were talking about last week, there's this voting method that City Council has been using for decades. No one's really questioned it. And it's pretty um, untransparent. I talked to, to experts who said it's it's untransparent because in, in, in some ways that they do their votes, you can't even tell if you're at the meeting, you're sitting there, you're watching in person, and you can't even tell how your elected representative is voting in the moment. You have to go back and check the next day or 
go talk to the clerk privately afterward. It's 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 an odd, archaic method that's somehow built upon the traditions and passed to city council, but the end result is residents can't understand what's happening in their government right in front of them. You know, I thought one thing in the story that really struck me looking back at it and and understanding it as a whole, you know, when I talked to former city council president, Martin Sweeney, he basically described the one method that doesn't allow members of the public to know who's voting which way. He even like straight up said, you could just walk up to the clerk and, and tell them quietly, he said, what your vote was. So so there was a former council president saying out in the open, it's quiet, it's a private vote, which that's not how public meetings are supposed to work. And, and that was... That was concerning. I I haven't heard too much feedback about this. People are concerned about the transparency issues that arise here, let alone the potential legal issues that our First Amendment expert detailed in my story. And, and you know, I talked to Council President Blaine Griffin briefly. He said he hasn't heard too much feedback on the on the story either. So I don't know if I don't know where this goes from here. But. There's nothing nefarious. It's not like they're trying to hide anything. So so we don't want to make it sound like this is a sinister plot. But what you pointed out does thwart the public interest. And the simple thing to do is to change it. Just change it now. If they don't change it now, with with it all being on public notice that they're doing things wrong, you could start to see people suing. Because it is a clear violation of the charter. Our editorial board today called on them to just, hey, fix it. Fix it right now. Don't do it wrong anymore. And it's a simple thing. When you're calling out the names, wait till they say I. I mean, it's not it's not that that challenging, right? It, it would seem so. I, I think another option here would be to change the charter, but that's a higher a higher bar, I would assume, to get through. I, I'm not I'm not sure where it goes from here, but it is it is troubling that it's now it's laid out that this is not a transparent practice that lets the public really access what their representatives are doing. And, and I hope that that is taken to heart, even if, like you said, I don't think there was anything nefarious here. It just was what it was and, and wasn't questioned for decades. I do want to say this. You are the latest in a very long line of city hall reporters, including me. Uh, and you're the first one that actually saw this and said, hey, there's something wrong here. So I salute you. The rest of us missed it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Who is Cleveland's newest celebrity chef? Laura, we have a very young chef as our celebrity chef. This is so cool. Alejandro, who goes by Alex Nehar, and he's 29. He made it through all 15 episodes of Hell's Kitchen, Battle of the Ages. And his last episode, he didn't win. His challenge was a five-course tasting menu with cold and hot appetizers, fish, chicken, and beef. And he lost one point because his filet was slightly overcooked, which, I mean... Okay, but it sounds like he did a great job. So he's returned home, and he's in the spotlight as the executive chef at Blue Door Bakery and Cafe in Cuyahoga Falls. And they've been a top breakfast and lunch spot for about 12 years. Now they're developing their casual fine dining dinner service. So he's got the run of that kitchen. So is it now going to be impossible to get a seat at that restaurant? (laughs) Probably, although... 
I mean, Cuyahoga Falls is not downtown Cleveland, so I don't know if everybody from Cleveland's going to drive to the falls. But hey, it's good for them. He says he's looking forward to cooking great food, and he wants to bring Summit County great food, great hospitality, and overall amazing experience. So, hats off. That's a really cool, cool thing. This has long legs, right? We've seen it before with people who do this that they they start to open more and more restaurants, they become celebrated, they put out cookbooks. So this could right. be the you, start. your name becomes affiliate. Everybody knows who Michael Simon is, right? Right. And he keeps writing books. So this could be the beginning of a very long career where we're talking about this guy. Yeah. And that's exciting. Yeah. Because yeah. Cleveland and Northeast Ohio, we we like our food. So yeah. <laughs> people like to talk about it. Good to end with some good news. It's today in Ohio. That's the end of a slightly shorter episode than usual. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Courtney. Thanks, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens. 